Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. You're listening to the Empty Office Podcast. My name's Mike Mason. I'm sitting here with Lukey Gale Tobin. Senator, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Mike. I'm also here with Representative Andrew Gray. Uh, Representative Gray, good morning. Good morning. So you are both freshmen in the Alaska State Legislature, and today is, we are over halfway through. Uh, Representative Gray, was this what you were expecting? None of this was what I was expecting. What were you uh, expecting? Well, and I just have to contrast myself with uh, Senator Tobin, who was a staffer in this building and has kind of seen the uh, pace of life in the building and how it changes over the weeks. And for me, it's all brand new. So um, really, I'm not sure that I really had any expectations, but I think if you were to say, what's the one thing that surprised you the most, it would be how busy I am from early in the morning until nighttime that there's really, you know, um, I was guilty of it as well. I remember when the legislators would come present to community councils, I'd be like, what do they do all day? Like read books, like sit around. They do not. <laughs> they do not sit around and read books. There's, I wish I had not a lot of sitting. Around. I wish I had time to read a book. I remember Tom telling me once that he couldn't wait for interim because he could finally read for pleasure. Mm -hmm. It was no longer reports or keeping updated on current events or trying to stay abreast and prepared for your committee hearings. It was going to be something that fed his soul. Mm -hmm. And now that I am in the thick of it and also doing a PhD program at the same time, I really hearken back to how to develop and manage my time better. What does that look like? And is that even possible in this job? Representative Gray mentioned the speech that you gave earlier the, uh, this week. And I just wanted to say, what a week it's been, mm. right? It's been a week. Tell me about your week. Well, <laughs> this week has been a uh, difficult week. I think it was the well, I was going to say the one-two punch, but it's almost like the one-two-three punch. And, it, and to me, it is all one piece, so I'm actually going to give a little bit more context to that. And that is, you know, when Roe v. Wade fell last summer, Clarence Thomas uh, wrote an opinion in which he said that there would be other court cases that the uh, Supreme Court would be looking at, one of which would have been Obergefell v. Hodges, which would take away marriage equality. And so I think for a lot of us, there's this feeling of dread over, ever since that court case that um, more shoes were going to drop, um, hoping that they wouldn't, but a fear that there would be. And then with our attorney general um, and the Mifepristone uh, issue of not wanting pharmacies to carry a, a certain medication that can be used for medication abortions, um, that decision. And then on Saturday is when I found out about th that they had reversed their, um, they had narrowed their protection for LGBTQ people in the state of Alaska to not include housing, uh, finance, credit, some other issues. They were going to narrow that focus and only protect LGBTQ people with regards to employment. And I felt that that was a very arbitrary decision. Um, I, I, I don't think that that's been spelled out in any way, shape, or form why they made that decision to narrow it. And then finally, the third shoe to drop was the... Uh, what, what, what he's calling the parents' rights and education bill, which I think for people like myself feel that it's a, 
a, a singling out of LGBTQ youth and shining a light on uh, a very small minority of students, the most vulnerable of students, um, implying and somehow that this very small minority of students are dangerous. And um, when in fact it's the other way around, they are our kids that are in danger. You know, I think that some in the executive branch have said that they certainly don't want any kind of cultural war. I feel that there is a cultural war. I feel there's a cultural war in this building. And I feel like that whether we like it or not, that's what's happening. And that there is a, uh, those of us like Senator Tobin, whom I appreciate so much for speaking, for speaking your mind and for being willing to say things that make people uncomfortable. I think this is the moment where we have to do it. It's a difficult role to find yourself in a situation where it could be easier to stay quiet and to try to stay focused on the simple yet important work that needs to happen. But there is that moment where you recognize that regardless of whether, whether the policy or the statute or the legislation makes it to the finish line, there are children who are watching this happen and they know that something terrible is going to occur to them that day. Whether it be because during a hearing they get outed by another community member, because they walk into school and suddenly feel like there are less trusted adults that they can talk to, whether it's they look around the community and they realize that it is a specific target that has been put on their backs. And I cannot imagine what it is like to be that young person other than to have the empathy of my own experience and to know how I felt in moments where people who looked like me were being accosted or shamed or threatened and how, how scared I felt. Why would anyone want any child to feel that way is beyond comprehension to me. And how others can't stand up collectively and say, this is untenable and it is not the right direction we should head in. This isn't about parents' rights. This isn't about protecting life. This isn't about making sure that the government isn't in the private business of citizens. This is, a, this is simply about denying a group of individuals their their inherent rights to life and liberty and happiness. It is so disgusting to me that it's difficult at times for me to articulate how abhorrent I find the direction that we are headed and how few people are willing to just stand up and say no. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the bill itself, the permission slip part. Um, for those who may not know, the um, quote parents' rights in education bill has a provision in it where um, kids who want to be called by a different name or use a different pronoun would need to get a permission slip signed by their parent. What one teacher said to me is like, wow, the first day of school, I feel like I spend the entire hour uh, going down the roll and having every kid be like, you know, it's Becky, not Rebecca, you know, like making those little changes. And it sounds like, or, or it, it reads to me that you would need to get a, a permission slip signed. But of course, to, to, in order to call someone Becky instead of Rebecca. However, um, I think we all know 
that that's not what this is about. And that, you know, parents know when their daughter goes by Rebecca and not or go, goes by Becky. So it's not a big deal. The big deal is, um, you know, when it, when it is about a gender nonconforming child or someone who doesn't feel they fit in. And, and I think to me, sort of an elephant in the room is, is parents who talk to their kids, parents who have good relationships with their kids, parents who have an open door relationship with their own children should already know this stuff. So this idea that um, schools are secretly doing things with their children is unfounded. I, I, I taught high school for a couple of years in Los Angeles um, when I was in my early 20s. And um, I, at parent-teacher conferences, I always invited parents to come to my classroom anytime. You, know, you can sit in the back, you can watch. I only had a couple parents take, take me up on it. Their, their um, feedback usually was something like, you know, you're not, he's, he's not really paying attention. And, you know, maybe you should move him a little closer to the front. Can you change his seat? Like that was generally the feedback I got from parents. But ultimately, I don't think that I was an anomaly. I think the vast majority of teachers are happy for parents to know everything that happens in their classroom 100% of the time. There is nothing secret happening in our schools. And I think that, that really, you know, the elephant in the room is that I believe that a lot of people who are supportive of this measure um, probably already homeschool their children and probably already send their kids to religious schools. And I think that there is a religious component to this bill that is not explicitly there, but I think that there is this, um, well, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> so one thing we've talked about in our office is the politics of this, because mm-hmm. inherently our roles and responsibilities are politically motivated. They're politically infused and tinged. And we can look back on history and see that culture wars occur when a group in power recognizes that there's a very strong opportunity they'll lose more ground in the upcoming presidential election. So they drum up fake outrage, Mm -hmm. whether it's about marriage equality or whether it's about LGBT rights. Mm -hmm. In this case, it has been the demonization of gender nonconforming and trans community members Mm -hmm. because it is so easy to otherize a group that is such a small part of the population you are you are able to say it's all because of these these folks. The reasons we can't have nice things is because of these folk. Mm-hmm. And I think back to the 80s and 90s when gay men were being so demonized in our society mm-hmm. that you should be fearful walking down the street or going into a bathroom because there was predators on the loose. There was groomers on the loose. And we're seeing that same playbook be repeated, but now about a very specific, very vulnerable group of people, and even more so, our children. Mm-hmm. I came of age in a culture in which uh, it was kind of the height of the AIDS epidemic, and the narrative in my community was that God was punishing gay men by killing them with AIDS. And... Um, that uh, that they deserved it. And, um, you know, me coming out, uh, I came out in 1993. I, uh, when I was 17, 18 years old. Um, and, uh, 
you know, they, they, it was really me, uh, to my family, they felt that I was, I, that I had a death sentence and that, that my time on earth would be limited because it was just inevitable that I would uh, contract HIV and die. And um, I'm glad that's not true anymore, but I think that there is um, some rose-colored glasses when people look back on history and say that um, it wasn't that bad. It was real bad. I think a lot about school and the idea of teaching accurate history. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to do some small group work with young queer kids. And I was talking about the beginning of the Pride Foundation, the board that I serve on, and how we formed around the AIDS epidemic, around individuals not having the right to help dictate the medical wishes of their loved ones because of all of the discrimination and the prejudice that was occurring simultaneously with this epidemic. And these young kids looked at me and said, oh, that's a fallacy. That's just what they said. That really isn't true. And I had to take a deep breath and think, this is the story that these young kids are hearing that is not rooted in our true history because we have whitewashed it mm -hmm. to make ourselves look better, to make ourselves feel better for the atrocities that we perpetuated on a very vulnerable group of young people at the time who were just trying to love. Mm -hmm. That is, it was surprising to me, but yet felt par for the course because my own family's history falls very much in that camp. We talk about whitewashing of things for a very particular reason. We use those words. We gloss over all of the horrific things we have done to make ourselves look better and feel better. I want to call just a brief audible um, and talk about uh, kind of on this subject, but the the power of students confiding in teachers. Mm -hmm. um, I ran away from home the fourth quarter of my senior year. Only person I told was my English teacher, who was like my debate coach at the time. They looked for me for two days, and I just basically took off to the East Coast. And my case is surely not unique. You probably confided in teachers. I know I've heard stories of Senator Tobin confiding, confiding in teachers. Do you think this legislation and what we're seeing nationally makes it more challenging for students to feel safe telling teachers and, and confidants, that kind of stuff? I'm going to say that I never confided in teachers. Um, I mean, I, I just want to say... You, you probably didn't feel safe. Well, I was going to say I, I, I was in a small town in Texas and... I would say the teachers were a reflection of my community and they were uh, very much in line with my parents. And I, um, I have a particular memory of being a freshman in high school in theater, which you would think would be a safe place. Mm -hmm. And a, uh, the theater teacher implied that I was gay while I was uh, doing an exercise on stage. Uh, it was humiliating. It was a humiliating experience. So, um, and then I will also say that, that that theater teacher retired and we got a new theater teacher. Um, and I did a lot of theater in high school. And um, my senior year, uh, I'd done a lot of plays. I'd been the lead, done all that stuff. And the theater teacher said, 
Andrew, you know, I, I wish you the very, very best of luck, but whatever you do, don't come back with a man on your arm. That was the parting words at the end of my senior year from my theater teacher. So I just want to throw, put, put it in there that, that the idea that, you know, that schools are um, this very safe place where kids can confide and um, have the type of support that they can't get at home, um, I think that's exaggerating the difference between schools and, and um, the, you know, the they, they are a product of the community from which they come. I also, I want to really quickly correct something from a year ago. I appeared on Dan Fagan, and this is in the line with the the rose-colored glasses. I was talking to him about something that I shared on the floor uh, a couple days ago, which was that that we had Leviticus 2013 hanging on our refrigerator, which uh, is a Bible verse that states that basically that gay men deserve the death penalty. And um, he said, he said, you know, I don't think anyone really believes that. It was like, that might be what had happened, but I don't think any of those churchgoers believe that. And I didn't say it at the time, but here in this interview, I'm realizing at the time that was hanging on my refrigerator, gay men were dying all around me. And quote, religious, you know, devout Christians were saying, this is what they deserve. God is striking them down. So I wish I'd kind of remembered that at the moment when I did that interview with him, but um, I get the chance to, to just throw that out there now that I do think that there were definitely people in my small town in Texas who um, took that Bible verse to heart. I think that's why the op-ed that aired in the ADN this week is so powerful. There are many in our faith community who are reconciling the harm that faith has done and perpetuated on so many groups and there is power in calling in and calling each other out and saying this is where we have to atone for generations of hate and discrimination and harm and if we're unwilling to speak up and speak out then we don't deserve to have these beautiful people be living next to us. We have to do the labor. We can't ask them to carry the message. We can't ask them to go out and be the spokesfolk for these issues. That's our job. We're the ones who created the harm. Are you talking about the op-ed that was written by Michael Burke, uh, Matthew Schultz, and, and Rabbi Abram Goodstein? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's an amazing. It's an amazing op-ed. And I'll just point out that... I think it was in yesterday's paper. In the paper itself, the physical version, it's right underneath Attorney General Treg Taylor's, I guess, explanation for the change in policy to no longer protect LGBTQ folk in housing in Alaska. Um, so I, I appreciate that pairing um, of those two op-eds. Before we run totally out of time, I want to ask about podcasting yeah. because Representative Gray, you started, it was called the East Anchorage Book Club Podcast, and now it's called the East Anchorage Matters okay. Podcast. And uh, I just wanted uh, a couple of things. One, you are a great interviewer. Uh, one, you, you have tremendous empathy for the person you are talking to, which sometimes for me is diff challenging because sometimes I don't empathize with 
with uh, a lot of people, but that's, that's a, it's a fabulous skill that you have. Uh, are you a podcast listener and it, are you like a fan of the podcasting genre? Yes. Yes. I want to say, I appreciate the compliment, Mike, about being empathetic. If I were to criticize myself listening to the 50 interviews that we had on East Anchorage book club, and then seven soon to be eight on East Anchorage matters. Um, I think sometimes I, I, I'm not as empathetic as I could have been. I, I hate when I listen back and I ask a question and somebody tells me something pretty deep and painful and I don't acknowledge it in some way. I'm looking at the clock and I'm looking at my next question and I'm like, let's go to college. What was, you know, like they tell me something terrible that happened in their childhood. And I'm like, and what college did you go to? And so um, I appreciate that, but I think that I could still do better. Um, it is something that I, I, and if you, when you talk about podcasts, I think the podcast genre is interesting because um, a lot of things that weren't podcasts are podcasts now. For example, I listen to Fresh Air, Terry Gross. Um, she is the the model for me. She's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> she is. And so, um, you know, obviously she wasn't a podcast in the 80s, but she's. A, I listen to her as a podcast now. Even some uh, TV news shows, um, I, as we were talking about earlier, being super busy, I don't watch any television at all in Juneau. But there are a couple of TV news shows that I will listen to the following day as a podcast when I'm at the gym or walking to work. There's some really good ones. My cousin in Pennsylvania has been listening to I Did a Pod. Uh, they were telling me that they started listening to I Did a Pod during their top surgery and got very sucked into I Did a Rod. And this year is just absolutely enamored with the race. And I find it interesting that this very local, very far away race can be enjoyed by people all around the globe because of this medium. Mm -hmm. That makes me very jazzed because Iditarod is such a core part of my personal identity, particularly because I grew up in Nome. And to have this ability to text back and forth with my cousin about very nerdy, mushing data points is wonderful. It mm -hmm. just open something up that I don't think uh, we as a culture have ever had the ability to do, which is hear each other and listen to each other's stories in a very visceral way. I love digital storytelling. I think there is such power in the medium. I have two quick things to say. Number one, doing the podcast, especially East Anchorage Matters, where I'm interviewing people in the building, such as you, Senator Tobin, it's not so much about me. Uh, I mean, it is about me delivering something interesting to the listeners, but I'm also having a conversation with someone in the building that I wouldn't have if that recorder wasn't between us. People are, I'm willing to ask questions that I wouldn't normally ask, and they're willing to tell me things that they wouldn't normally tell me, which is ironic for a politician to be willing to say things, you know, with a recorder in front of them that they wouldn't say in small talk outside, you know, it's, it's, so I'm creating a relationship with people. Um, so uh, that's kind of interesting. The second thing I'll say about the local stuff. So in East Anchorage book club, 
They were all very local stories. However, every once in a while, I would do something not local. And I interviewed Jim Obergefell from Obergefell v. Hodges. So, and he lives in Ohio. Um, he is the plaintiff um, in basically the Supreme Court case that legalized gay marriage. And I was super happy. I thought it was a huge get, like this amazing, you know, subject. It The numbers did not work out. I mean, East Anchorage Book Club, people wanted to hear about East Anchorage. People wanted to hear about Alaska. And getting this national figure, um, it actually had a lot less numbers. What's interesting, though, and this is like the the fun thing that you can do with podcasts, is that you get so much data back from your hosting service. And so I know that some very local stories about Anchorage are being listened to in Europe and Asia. Like I could see where people are listening to them. And so it's so funny that people are listening, you know, to these stories about Anchorage in, in Germany, but no one's listening to my interview with the national figure, which I am plugging, by the way, it is a good interview. So if you want to go back and listen to Jim Obergefell on the podcast, I think it was a really good, I think it was a, a good interview. Well, I will admit that I have only listened to your Alaska-based one, so I will have to go back and listen. So you are listening to the Empty Office podcast. And my final question, and I've asked this of basically everybody that we've had on so far, is uh, if you could take one person, dead or alive, drop them into this building and they get a vote to help us out, who would that be? Okay, well, I, I knew who I wanted to say when you kind of prepped me for this interview right before we started. And it is um, not... Well, maybe it's the answer that you expect from me. Um, I'm going to say Emma Goldman, um, and I'm going to tell you why. So Emma Goldman was a very famous anarchist. She served time in prison. She was good friends with Vic Fisher's parents. Vic Fisher is, of course, the last living signer of the Alaska Constitution, I interviewed him twice for my podcast. Um, I play a clip of Emma Goldman being released from prison on that podcast. And before like people start cutting and using this for like, I don't know, attack ads on me. Um, it's not necessarily that I'm, I'm, I'm espousing Emma Goldman's views. She, she definitely engaged in some criminal behavior and I don't um, support that criminal behavior, but I think it's more along the lines of putting someone in the building who's willing to say anything to anyone, putting someone in the building who is willing to stand up to power at every step of the way and willing to follow convictions all the way to the end. Um, I think that's why I'd pick her. So not because I want to be Emma Goldman, but because I think that that would be a, a really fun person to just drop into the building. You have been listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. Thank you so much, Andrew Gray. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple Podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave a positive review, which will help spread the word. My name is Mike Mason, and please be safe out there. Uh-huh.